0: this is the shift podcast today on the shift daily podcast u.s president joe biden made a surprise visit to ukraine and Kyiv. so how is that sitting with ukrainians we ask lawyer and democracy advocate Mikhail zernikoff he gives us his thoughts on the president's visit and the upcoming anniversary of the beginning of the war Do we need more bike lanes or highways? Marcus Mouse, director of the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo tells us how to address urban planning issues from across the country and highlights some exciting ways Canadian cities are innovating. Are you okay with Barney, the dinosaur, and what about scorpions? It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. It was a big weekend this weekend in Ukraine. My goodness, a very special guest showed up. Our very special guest is Mikhailo Zernikov. He joins us. He's a lawyer, judge, advocate for democracy and works on what the future of Ukraine looks like. Mikhailo, hello.
1: Hi. Hi, Shane.
0: Welcome uh, welcome back to the show, my friend. Um, how are you Thank today you. after this weekend? Um, and a busy weekend for you, it seems.
1: Well, quite, yes. Uh, I'm finally back home. It took a little bit uh, um, Time and effort to uh, come back from Munich uh, as well as going Poland. There it takes about 40 hours um, because of you know planes not flying over Ukraine, so you have to take two trains to Poland and fly from there. Uh, well, other than being a uh, little tired and uh, not getting very much sleep, uh, quite good actually because good news coming from Munich and uh, yes, a very special visit.
0: Yeah, so there was a special visit. The phone's breaking up just a little bit. If you can uh, adjust yourself, maybe a little bit more open spot, Mikhailo, that'd be great. Um uh-huh. The weekend this weekend, the president of the United States shows up. They say no phones in 10 hours on a train. Um Biden's secret trip um, from the United States over to Kiev. Uh, how surprised were Ukrainians when the president of the U.S. just showed up and went for a stroll with your president?
1: Well, quite surprised. Even though I can't say we weren't. Is, is this is this better? Sorry, because I, yeah, its connection yeah. is not is not uh, the best. Okay, cool. No, it sounds, it sounds uh, good yeah, yeah, good. Um, so yeah, we we heard that he is m- coming to Poland, maybe, and uh, then we we kind of hold a breath because um, say it. Um, it's not that it was expected, but we hoped that he would come because that would mean a lot. And luckily, he did. So. Uh, Yeah, we're we're very happy.
0: So there's been, uh, of course, the opposing speeches that start to come out as the president of uh, Russia starts to say all kinds of things about downplaying everything else and and how, you know, the U.S. is terrible and you're terrible and all those things. Um, And uh, and the the politicking begins. The dance does begin all of this on the heels of some pretty wicked fighting on the east end of your uh, your country as Mm -hmm. well. Does it surprise you, the timing?
1: well no uh it doesn't i think it's i think it's very well done from from the us uh, uh point and from i mean we we both we all did it well i think because uh it's it's a very symbolic day it's a presidents day in america it's uh, i mean in, in the us uh, it's uh, um uh, it's the day of commemoration of of the Heavenly Hundred. That's that's the people who died on on Maidan during the Revolution of Dignity. That's basically and and the day of the start of, of annexation of Crimea, according to Russia, by the way, uh, itself. So uh, it's it's basically when the war started uh, nine years ago. So uh, it's it's a it's a very symbolic day actually, and it's it's uh, days before the anniversary of of the current. Uh, lo- full-scale invasion so it's uh, it was very good that you know uh the u.s uh, that we both that we all showed initiative that we um showed that we're not afraid that uh sh- showed a lot of support and uh, that uh, because there was there was you know quite a bit of oh what is putin gonna do on the 24th i mean what he didn't do yet because uh of, of obvious reasons uh, so uh yeah, it's good. It's good that we took the initiative. I mean, the civilized world and and showed everybody, Russia included, as first and first the promised Russia and China, by the way, that uh, democracy still not only counts, but democracy uh, is the leading um, system in the world, and the free world is still is still free world.
0: Yeah. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Okay. Well, you brought up the anniversary. So let's go there next. The, you know, we're a couple of days away here from the anniversary. And how do you, how do you acknowledge that? I don't want to say celebrate, but then Mikhailo, I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't understand how this works, but there is an air of celebration because a year ago when Russia stepped into this, this was supposed to be a couple of days. So the celebration of Ukrainian spirit is. I and please correct me, but it seems to me to be worth celebrating. The Ukrainian spirit has been proven not only to Russia, but the world. And at the same time, though, not celebrating because this is dreadful and wrong. So how do you how do you and your colleagues, your your circle of friends and Ukrainians? How do you look at this? Uh, Maybe both ways. I don't know.
1: I think it is yes. I think you're very right. Uh, it's 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 both celebrating that you know it's been a year and we're we're holding, uh, we're staying strong uh, with your support of course and 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 you know again democracy the free world stands. Uh, we will feel it a lot uh, and uh, especially you know there's uh, there's uh, quite good but well, not quite good. It was, very, it was very warm, firm confirmation of, of uh, um, you know solidarity with Ukraine at the Munich conference. Um, and at the same time, yes, we're commemorating that. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's a terrible situation. It's it's been you know one one year is exactly one year too long to have a, a bloody conflict and a war and aggression and all the atrocities that Russia is is, uh, is doing. So it's it's kind of both. But I mean, I am I am hopeful and uh, especially um, seeing that politically all over the world, the it seems that it shifted, uh, um, uh, should I say, completely uh when at least when you're talking about uh, the civilized world the western world the, the democratic world that that everybody is uh very supportive of ukraine everybody pledged that that they will support us until as long as it's it's necessary and that everybody's heading towards full ukrainian win and the liberation of the territories that that means that means really a lot so yeah that's that's kind of a mix of two of the two
0: mm-hmm. yeah and it's uh it must be mixed emotion expected on the day too right i mean there's a lot of tears on the day there's a lot of celebration of spirit i mean who would have thought that you know people who were i don't know working at libraries and and corner stores would have been picking up guns and learning how to make and throw molotov cocktails to protect their neighborhoods and then not only that succeeding at doing it too i mean wow yes just a swirl of emotions eh?
1: Oh absolutely. Well President Biden said uh and I think he means it. I mean he, he, he knows Ukraine. He's been here what six times as vice president and what now as president. So um uh that's that's quite a lot. And uh he says something I, I might be not not maybe entirely correct, but something along the lines of uh Ukraine reminded us what what's really democracy is and what is what is fighting for it. So um yeah i think we showed we were surprised ourselves i mean a lot of people and a lot of countries around were surprised and uh, and this means a lot for us because we kind of rediscovered ourselves too and that that um uh, Sped up a lot of things for us, uh, such as the EU integration and 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 other things. Of course, the the toll is unimaginable. The, the people in everyday, the people are suffering immensely on the occupied territories. That is why you know, those arms, providing everything everything to to complete the victory is is crucial uh, right now. And thank you for this, and 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 please continue doing this as as fast as possible. Uh, but yeah, but also the you know that that also gives us a lot of. Uh, not only hope, but but real progress, and and uh, also buys us quite a bit of time, because yes, time is now um, really sped up. So we we have to we have to catch up and and uh, and transform uh, really fast.
0: Now, some of the uh, colleagues that you are around and people you meet in your network of, of co- uh, you know, of colleagues in, in industry are, you know, pretty political, politically inclined, foreign affairs inclined, um political science mm-hmm. folks and all those people. I mean, kind of a friendly competition happening here as the president of the United States shows up. I mean, the European Union of, of com- uh, countries, you know, they're sort of looking at Ukraine going, hey, we don't this is a europe thing we can stand with ukraine and and do all these things and and we don't want america to get involved in a bad way just that you know that hey do we want that to overshadow what we're doing here or are we going to do what it takes to do that almost like a little friendly competition about you know we got this is it possible that this visit inspires more participation from some of the countries that are closer to ukraine
1: well, yes. It shows. First of all, I think it shows solidarity, and it shows it shows leadership of the U.S. You're you're absolutely right. Uh, not that you know the the EU leaders uh, did not visit before. I mean, numbers of times already. President der and President Michel, um, other presidents of the member EU countries uh, were here. Per the UK. So it's it's uh, it's been uh, really. I mean. The, we already felt solidarity with, with, with and the support of those countries, but uh, it, it's good now that, that that it's not only European; it's transatlantic, really, in that sense as well. And um, because again, it's 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 not only about uh, something happening in Ukraine; it's it's definitely uh, something. It's it's an attack, not only on Ukraine, it's attack only on on the on a, on a democratic uh, uh, system. It's attack on on the free world. It's a, it's the attack on. Uh, um, the whole set, security setup of the world, and I mean, if if, if this if you and rightly so as mentioned again in the Munich conference, if Ukraine doesn't win then the whole um, the whole security setup of the world crumbles. So that is why that is why it's so important to uh, to uh, to help us win, and that's why it's so important to in this way defend democracy and and the security of the world. But also, it's important to uh, show every other autocrat in in the world that that uh such behavior will not be tolerated and there will be consequences
0: yeah fascinating stuff that's for sure um as we uh talk to Mikhail zernikov he is in uh, ukraine some of your colleagues that we've made friends with as well through the course of this last year uh those who are down in mm-hmm. odessa have really struggled with internet connections consistent electricity and so much more we've been lucky with you in fact uh, you and I in our personal conversation earlier. You know, you're on the train, you're you're doing your thing. Um, what does it look like inside um inside Ukraine right now? It seems to be inconsistent from region to region for things like electricity yes. and for internet to access and mobile connections.
1: Yeah, especially in Odessa, uh, you're you're right. Uh, that that's still, I think it's uh, they're they're struggling a bit with um, uh, with with the electricity. However, again the the, the this system also showed a great resilience and also again of course because our armed forces heroic armed forces because of your guys help because because of the um air defense systems uh we now shoot about what um, just a bit under 90 percent of, of the missiles flying away that are targeting uh, civilian infrastructure first and foremost the um you know, the infrastructure that that has to do with electricity, because Russia, they basically declared the top that they want us to freeze, and uh, during the winter, that seems now uh, did not happen and it will not happen because it's already getting a bit warmer, and that's one of the reasons uh, why um, there is less um, load on, on our electricity grid, and that is why now now we are basically now already for several days we're not um, out apart from some regions around Odessa and, and some, maybe some other southern regions were not um, getting, um, uh, what they call them, um, blackouts and, and, yeah, they're not trying all the electricity. And that already seems, and is, is a big progress. I mean, that, uh, what are your expectations? I mean, but it set the bar not very high uh, for, no. or it is sad for you, uh, then you're, you're just happy to have electricity back home. For, and that's, that already kind of looks like a miracle a little bit.
0: Now, for work, you left the country, you had to go and uh, do working things. So I want to be clear, it's not a vacation that you're taking by any means. But, Mikhailo, how did it feel to get out for the first time in a year and uh, go to Munich and do what you do, and then also to return back to continue um, the hard work that you and so many other Ukrainians are doing? Um, That experience personally must have been quite interesting to just to be with. Can you help describe that for us, what it was like to leave and then come back?
1: yeah sure uh, it, it actually was the second because the first one for me was the uh, Lugano conference on ukraine's reconstruction uh mm-hmm. so this, this was also quite quite big um and uh and that's for a reason so to so a big event i can sort of afford to leave the country because because of the martial law the males eight, 18 to 60 do not you know cannot leave or, or generally but uh, there can be exceptions if if there is uh say a, a strong reason for us to go Uh, Outside and and advocate for the country because we well, I feel at least that I so I'm quite happy with with what I personally did there. What the Ukrainian delegation did there, both uh, I mean official, uh, but but also the civil society um, that that I also represent. So um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's good to change the scenery. It's you're absolutely right. It's not a vacation. I I had very little sleep, quite honestly, because of how how intense the program was and how. uh, you know, may, very many things happened, and it's uh, it's both fascinating and, and 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 very useful. I I believe to to talk directly to world leaders, to uh, other decision makers who you know shape the policy, to explain to them uh, that the global South, quote unquote. I don't like this simplification, but uh, basically the countries that are you know very I think very focused on on the transatlantic cooperation lately, like we also discussed today, but. Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of players in the world, a lot of important uh, uh, countries and continents and, and unions and, uh, you know, with, with, with their view of the world, would say, they're not convinced uh, that no, nobody likes aggression, nobody likes violence, but uh, they, they do have, say, a... a, a Uh, Specifically on things, and uh, it's absolutely crucial to work with them as well. And that's what the Munich Conference does. It becomes more kind of inclusive in that way, and that's what we have to do. And with what we, I think. Uh, are doing now more is talking to latin america to asia to africa explaining our situation also uh convincing them what what they have to support that they have to support us because it's essentially supporting democracy and uh, and uh, security so that's, that's that's a lot of important work and, and i'm and i'm happy i i contributed a bit to uh to that as well but yeah it's 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 a bit of Weird to to be out of the country because I mean I was when I was at the airport I was a little bit lost because it's I just I think I just ha- forgot how to airport where to go how to how to uh, yeah what what to do but uh, in the end it was all right I mean not without uh, just a little bit of, of complication but I, I finally got out there and back uh, luckily alive uh, safely and now I'm back and uh, and and back to work uh, here in York.
0: Did you notice the lack of varied sirens at nighttime when you were trying to sleep, or was it just, you know? Because I'm curious about uh, that. Because we've the- shared that you share that with us. How you, um, at some nights you sleep through them, but at the same time they wake you up.
1: Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's you, you hear some sounds. Well, first of all, you know that confused when you can you, when you walk. You know your meeting ends and you see the meeting in the program at at end. Sorry, at 11:30 uh, p.m. and you go like yeah first thought, like, how come? Because the curfew is at 11. Then you go, like, oh, there's no curfew confu- in Munich. Um, so, yeah, that's so, some things you had to adjust to, but in a I, I guess in a positive way. But some things you also, you go, you, you hear a loud sound and you're startled. Uh, but then you go, like, okay, there's probably no uh, middle strikes here. Um, so, yeah, you, you 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 kind of relax. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 different, but again, it's also very, very very good uh, to to kind of change the scenery a bit and uh, and and get back to work. Yeah,
0: very cool stuff. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, I do look forward to uh, understanding more and learning more from how your week goes um, with the uh, with what's coming up here in a couple of days and the anniversary of all of this. So um, I sure. hope we can connect and, and chat again soon.
1: Thank you very much, Shane, for doing this. Thank you, thank you, team, and thanks, Canada, and the free world for help for helping us. Please continue doing this.
0: This is The Shift Podcast. We've spoken at length an awful lot here on The Shift about how we can make these cities of ours better. Um, one of the most fascinating Twitter conversations that I observed in the last little bit here was about hospitals in Alberta. It was a great one. Uh, somebody had made a comment, some politician made a comment about hospitals and um, and some just random dude made a comment said i live in the fifth largest city in the province which is airdrie the city i live in and we don't even have a hospital so why don't you start there i think was the comment i thought that was really great one of many conversations that i think we as canadians need to start asking we've been it's been pounded into our heads about we've got to be greener and we've got to do all these things but you know we still observe these big towers go up that are covered in led lights to make them prettier that serves our vanity and then we've got bike lanes which are really, really convenient in a city like Vancouver, but then you got a city like Calgary, which is so spread out. Is that gonna work? You know, what we don't know. So why don't we ask somebody who does know housing planning, all of those things? And Marcus Moss is with us here. I uh, he joins us. I don't know if you're related to Jeannie Moss from CNN, but I have a crush on her. Um, she's one of my favorites. Marcus, thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so uh, Marcus, this is your jam. This is kind of your world. Director, School of Planning, professor, University of Waterloo. Um, how about let's take a look, uh, our first snapshot here about, you know, Canadian cities in general. And are we doing enough? I'm not going to, we'll get into the right in a minute. <laughs> but like, are we doing enough to push these urban sprawl-based mentality cities forward into a world that's
2: more convenient? Uh, we're probably not doing enough. Um, I think, you know, it's important to sort of think about how Canadian cities largely developed uh, with the automobile, right? Whereas is compared to European cities that in large part developed before the automobile. Uh, and so what that means is that a lot of our cities and their suburbs uh, really are catering um, to getting around by automobile. If you want to get around more sustainably, um, you know, in greener ways, it's you're gonna have to make things denser to be able to bike and walk Uh, and also transit kind of needs a certain level of density so that you can um, have the kind of population that you get a a suitable service level Um, of course there's also greener cars right and so it's a bit of a for me it's often a bit of a, a balance between those two and I think it also depends of probably where you're talking about and so downtown Toronto vancouver some of the big cities uh medium-sized cities probably makes a lot of sense to try and get people more on on bikes and foot and into transit but some of the rural areas you know are we are we really talking about running buses to some of the small towns and hamlets or are we really Mm -hmm. you know are we better off promoting greener vehicles um in in those cases um
0: yeah well in that conversation in itself i mean I have a friend of mine who had a Tesla. It was fully charged. It was minus 34, and he got 13 um, kilometers out of it before it told him he had to stop and charge again. Right, so okay. you can't imagine that car in Winnipeg and Edmonton in the middle of winter. Uh, but at the same time, um, what a great car for Vancouver, right? Um, <laughs> you know, or Quebec where there's where there's green power. So we we go through all of these little bits and pieces, Marcus, about how we can somehow make this all work. But we still run into two things, and my big two questions for you really are: it's time and money. Now, we can have all the transit in the world that runs out through all this sprawl, right? But if it takes you an hour and a half, two hours to get to work on a 20-minute drive, now we're just being reckless with people's time. And then cost of living becomes an issue because there's not enough places downtown. So the apartments and condos have skyrocketed. And of course, politicians don't want to erode that market either and have a big plunge in the housing market. But now it's unattainable to even get downtown. Downtown Vancouver, good luck right? Getting into a place in downtown Vancouver, little landlocked, one might say, but, um, and different, maybe a different scenario than say a downtown Toronto because it is so landlocked in Vancouver, but time and money to me seems to be our biggest failure in all this. What do you
2: see? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, Definitely, you don't. You want to make it more convenient for people to use the greener option, right? And really, what we've done historically and still continue to do is we kind of incentivize low-density, sprawling, car-dependent developments and the in the kind of things that we um, that we make easy for people to do, right? And um, at the same time, we you you know sort of hit the um, nail on the head there for me because I I think a lot about housing in the context of planning. And of course, you can you can tell people all you want, that you want them to live in more sustainable neighborhoods or greener neighborhoods. But if the housing there isn't affordable to them, they're not going to be able to move there. And so affordable housing in many ways has to be a, a key component of, of getting people to live in more, you know, what we might broadly call more environmentally friendly neighborhoods. But we often talk about affordability and you know, we don't always talk about suitability, which, you know, is another way to think hmm. about housing is, is, is the housing suitable for different kinds of households? Oh, yeah. A lot of the housing so we build in what we might call transit-oriented neighborhoods is really quite small and it serves a particular market. It's, it's needed there in part. Um, But as soon as you, you know, you introduce uh, larger households, whether it's, you know, families with children um, or or larger households in general, it becomes tricky to find anything that um, you could afford. So you see the the smaller apartments, you know, they get taken up when you do build larger apartments. They often end up being rented to roommates, several roommates who can then afford a larger apartment. It's difficult for families to afford those. So we got to do something on affordability policy as much as on transportation policy. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you talk about that. I mean, if you're looking at a, a what a seventeen hundred fifty dollar, maybe fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar mortgage payment, I mean, you're looking at. I mean, the the design isn't working. I mean, you can get a house out, right, in suburbs, yes. right, or you can get a condo, plus condo fees, plus parking fees, plus you have to park, right, like plus 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 not using a car is also not free ride sharing costs you money the one thing that is nice about having a car is that at least you can mitigate or anticipate your car payment right if you're if you're buying transit passes plus you're using car sharing all those things because you're downtown that's fantastic until you gotta leave downtown
2: Yeah, no, that gets another that gets in another couple different issues. Actually, the the one is you know we've in our largest cities we've got reasonably good transit uh, within the cities, but uh, intercity transit, you know, connecting one city from another, we really don't have a lot of options for for Canadians, um, especially with you know some of the the larger bus companies disappearing as well in recent years. Um, so you know, so be, being completely car free, I think, is not an option for a for a lot of people. The other part is when you know people are making trade-offs about where to live and what kind of house to live there's some costs that are very direct to people like you like you say you pay for your car you pay for your mortgage or your rent right like that you see that very visible at the pump you pay for gas there's other costs that are a little bit more hidden and long term and they kind of are spread out more across society and so you know when we know that when we build neighborhoods where it's easier to get around on foot or by bike, um, that people are healthier, like they're, you know, they have a more active lifestyle, right? It's it, they, um, their health improves. Um, also, um, you know, there's an environmental cost, of course, to all our driving, right? CO2 emissions. We know um, that with with climate change, that the risk of extreme Um, weather events becomes higher, and they're more frequent. Um, And of course, there's lots of costs associated with trying to adapt now to various aspects of climate change, or to clean up disasters as they happen. So the cost of that is not free. um, But it's more spread out. So when you as an individual homeowner, or renter make a decision about where to live, it's a bit challenging to know, yeah, how do I, that individual cost of me driving more is going to result in a bigger environmental impact down the road, right? And so one of the reasons that I I think you have attempts to try and do things like carbon taxes is that you try to make it very visible to people what's, you know, financially, what some of these things are in terms of the longer term costs. The problem I see is that when you when you do create these financial structures that are meant to help us, you know, make greener choices, you do have to have the alternatives in place, right? Like, so it's one thing to, to charge us, charge more for driving. Let's say, you know, I'm in Southern Ontario, there's the 401, one of the busiest, also often most congested highways, you know, you could argue there should be a toll on it to, to incentivize using other modes, but arguably the other modes really don't have—you know—there's some regional rail, um, but is it really realistic to say that you know, people would switch because the alternatives really haven't been developed long enough? Um, and and so then likely what you get is just people driving the same but paying more. And so what I think long term really is needed is much more substantial investment in what we might call green infrastructure, right? Like so that um, in the long run we've invested um, from a government perspective in this kind of infrastructure. I mean, that's when you look to some countries where it's easy to get around by public transit, it's not because they went from one day to the next and suddenly had a fabulous transit system. They over decades, right, have, invested in, in rail and buses, uh, in, in light rail, in regional rail systems, and all those things fairly well connected around more compact neighborhoods. That takes decades to develop. Uh, and so I think, you know, an argument, some of the things we need to do now aren't likely not meant for you and I right now, but meant for 20, 30 years from now. So, it, right. you know, it's a, so there's a couple of things we won't benefit from, but still need to do right now.
0: Yeah, well, you know what it makes me think of? It, it makes, I was in Ireland in, um, in June. Yep. And so, you know, you look at the GO train in Southern Ontario. It's a pretty fantastic program, really. Um, it's a nice, easy way to get to concerts. It's a nice, easy way to do those kinds of things, yeah. right? Commuter, commuters that can live in you know, Oakville and Burlington or the Hammer, or whatever, can get in and out of the city or Oshawa. And so, I mean, that from that part, it's it's pretty great. But really, when you compare that to a train, the train system in Ireland, it's nowhere near the same as reliable, consistent. I mean, those train stations, I mean, sure, Union downtown is huge. But aside from that, the train stations and the systems that are built in there, and the reason why they can do that, canals used to be the highways. So then the government owned that property, Mm -hmm. and they used along the canals. um, That's why the train actually doesn't always stop in the biggest cities. It stops in the cities that are on the canals. They accepted that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you might not go into Kildare, but you might go to Nace, and it's about a seven-minute drive between the two. But the reality is, is you can get there, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just so convenient. But that's hundreds of years of work. You know, we need to look at this from a perspective of, of how are we going to get it? Like you said, how are we going to get it started? Um, but at the same time, just not say that something like the go train is enough when it gets to the end of the line and all it does is turn around and go back again, right? It, the, just the level of of organization that's there is completely different than the trains you see in places like Europe, like you talked about.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's a great example. I'm not that familiar with the Ireland system, but I am fairly familiar with the Swiss system because I'm originally actually from Switzerland. Um, you know, and I would argue Switzerland actually has one of the most extensive rail systems and well-functioning. Um, I think key there, a couple of things that you mentioned too, right? Frequency and coverage. Come regularly and you can get almost anywhere you need to. Yes, like some of the places you would get to by public transit, even in Switzerland with a strong public transit system, it'll be faster by car. There's just some areas you can't, you know, compete in terms of speed. And time, but certainly you could still get there uh, on a fairly regular basis. So if we're serious about you know having uh, people switch from, from driving to other modes, you kind of have to have that frequency uh, and that network coverage. And so if we build a system that's sort of focused only on lines that are most heavily used... Which I guess initially kind of makes intuitive sense to so say, oh, yeah, let's build where the trains are mostly used, right? But it's it's sort of taking a bit of a too narrow a perspective of looking at each individual train line as its own almost business, right, that has to generate a profit when really you need an entire system for people to make those bigger decisions. Oh, I'm willing to move here and only have... One car instead of two cars, right? And I guess that's right. maybe this or the idea. Well, they other. do it in aviation. Yeah. Right? I mean, so <laughs> yeah.
0: sometimes those little flights, those little hops that get you, maybe um, to I don't know Prince George or Penticton, aren't the most profitable of all the routes. But what it does is it gives you an awful lot of access to get um, into those communities and bring people into the big airports, right? So I mean, there's got to be a way to pull it off because somebody's somebody's done it. And all these other things. Uh, our guest right now is Marcus Mose, and he's with us. Uh, he's, a, he's a planner guy. So let's talk about the houses because that's kind of your jam. What are you excited about where we're going with city planning, houses, all of those things? Is there is there something that you think that we are doing a great job or maybe one city you can shut out that's that you're excited about what you're seeing?
2: <laughs> that's a great question, yeah. Um, so... What I'm excited about is that there is a commitment to build, um, you know, housing in and around transit. I think that's a really important thing that we're doing. Um, that's happening in a number of communities. And in fact, Kitchen waterloo um, has, you know, recently had a light rail transit system built, and is one of the few mid sized cities that has a, a fully functioning light rail transit system with a land use plan where you see higher density housing developed uh, around the lines. Um, I'm also, you know, really um, uh, always looking to to Vancouver for, for good examples in terms of the integration of land use and transportation planning. The problem with both the Kitchener-Waterloo and the Vancouver example is that, you know, the housing question isn't solved. So you do see this intensification. I see it right around where I live. Um, but the stuff that's being built is either one bedrooms and studios for singles uh, or and or it gets too expensive for most people. So you still see that pressure to sprawl. Um, but I think at a neighborhood level, like what I'm excited about is when I see Um, an integration of different housing types. So where we sort of move away from um, the homogeneous types of neighborhoods where it's all one housing type. Um, You know, I'm, I'm less excited about entire swath of high rises than I am about sort of a medium rise neighborhood that has maybe some single detached, some row housing, some eight to 10 story apartment buildings. And when those buildings are sort of arranged around green space uh, and connected to cycling paths, and you see pieces of that, you know, in many communities actually across Canada, um, but it's a small piece of all our communities. And so I think actually what I am excited about is that you see that, in so many places all across Canada, from places small to large, where there is people saying, hey, we need to do something for pedestrians, but it it is in smaller pieces. And so I think successes, we almost have to celebrate Maybe in the sort of, I'm a big fan of seeing marginal change, right? Like we may not see households going car-free anytime soon, but do we see a few households that switch from two cars to one car, right? Mm -hmm. Do we know we're not likely going to see people completely get rid of their car? Let's, you know, weekend shopping, people often want to go coffee over here, mall over there, maybe go down to a, a park or a hockey game, like do lots of things. It's difficult for transit to compete with that on the car, but let's focus on one you know, trip is fairly predictable. Is the commute to work not completely right? But let's maybe focus mm-hmm. on the commute as where we're going to try and get more people on trains and not worry so much about uh, other types of trips um, that are that are less predictable. Um, so it's the small incremental changes you see all over the place that are that are encouraging to me and that there's you know recently elected councils from, I'd point to to Waterloo, to places like Edmonton as well, where there's councillors, individual councillors who are really committed to creating neighbourhoods that are gonna provide actually more choice. I think I see it that way too, right? Cause in the, at the end, when you only can get around with a car, it's actually quite restrictive. It's restrictive from yeah. the cost perspective. It's restrictive from our, a large share of our population actually can't drive, right? Anybody without a driver's license, um, um, can't can't get around without a car, without help. And so, as as we're also seeing an aging population, with mobility issues and potential health concerns, there's going to be more older people too that will find it more convenient to be able to get around. Um, let alone our you know young people and teenagers who so often depend on on mom and dad or or dad and dad or yeah. mom and mom to drive well, them around
0: the parents that have two kids that are both in sports. I mean, there's no way that they can deliver those kids to the hockey rinks or the soccer fields um, on train systems uh, on weekends, because both kids are playing at the same time. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Okay, just a quick question. This is more of a setup for our next conversation that we'll have one day, is that in society today, this is a philosophy, and this is my hippie heart coming through, (laughs) Marcus, Like, but I think it's legit. In society today, we're seeing society really split in two ways. We're seeing this sort of young, vain, vanity, social media thing that's happening online. And I don't say it with judgment. I just say it pragmatically. And we also see this, I think this middle-aged person, soulful look for more, uh, more so than we've seen in past generations where people are desperately trying to find a grounded life just to get that reset away from the technology. So it's a bit of a dichotomy. It's a bit of a tug of war, if you will. And yet they still kind of dance together. People are going on vacations, my observation, to get into the grass, to get into the sand. And I still think that's why vacations have skyrocketed so much in popularity, because now you can go to a place where you can do all the things that generations ago used to do normally, Mm -hmm. right? Get out, play, have fun, be in the water, be on the beach, be in the dirt all that stuff. So we have this efficient high rise notion of density. And then we have this real push for people to get out of the cities and do that. Now, maybe it comes balanced with enough vacations that you can find the grounding that they're looking for. But you know, is it possible that we're going the wrong way with this sort of centrification, if you will, of life versus a bit of a regression back to people having space and, and not living all in the same block?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it really comes down to in my mind of how you design your neighborhoods and your communities as to whether people will want to leave them when they have free time. Um, one of my concerns that I see in Waterloo here, and I see, but it's not exclusive to here, I see it uh, in many communities, is when we do build higher density housing, um, what it really comes down to is site design. So we'll put in, you know, potentially some um, mid-rise apartment buildings. Maybe it's, you know, sort of five to 10 stories. What I often see is that they're arranged around parking in the middle of it. So, you know, we have the higher density housing, but the first thing you see when you come out of that apartment is your car. Um, yeah, more parking. Yeah, and yet at the same time, when we're trying to justify that density to existing residents, it's in the name of more sustainable transportation patterns. So I see a disconnect between what we're, telling people we want them to do versus how we're actually designing our individual sites and so that some of that is very localized right Um, and there Mm -hmm. are examples like this uh, in many parts of the world but one that I'm you know familiar with uh, um, is uh, again Switzerland where for instance I can think of you know some of the uh, apartments that family members live in that are all arranged around a green space right and the parking is underground Uh, and you have smaller yes of course smaller private space than the yards we tend to have here but it's still some private green space and then there's a big green shared screen space in the middle with a playground. And you can get huge efficiency gains in terms of land use when you start sharing that open space with other people, right? Like when you look at our neighborhoods, wow. a lot of our space goes to front and backyards. Um, and how much of that do we use on a daily basis? I, I like my backyard, I'm out there quite a bit, but I also know a lot yeah. of people aren't. Um, and you know, can we find ways that we we arrange our housing so that those spaces are more shared? Um, and in doing so, you also bring more people closer together, which means you can offer transit and things like that. So I don't know. So I think I, I would suggest it doesn't have to be this either or of like we have green space and quiet, that that's only available in low density places. I think that right. like, there's lots of examples we could look to. We say we can create that kind of more idyllic, quieter life, um, even when it's high density, but you got to do it right from the beginning. Cause once you build over all yeah. that green space, you can't get it back back. that's right yeah
0: yeah and that just goes to things like property taxes and all the things that are going on well this is fantastic marcus moses here i i I really appreciate you marcus and and a second to salute the cultures and families like filipinos and polynesians and all these different groups that when you go to these parks family gatherings outside all the time and um maybe there's something to us to learn uh too as us more i guess longer lineage canadians that have stopped doing a lot of those things Uh, it's really nice to meet you i look forward to digging into more of this through time so thanks for being here marcus oh that's great thanks so much i really
2: enjoyed the conversation
0: this is the shift podcast are you okay with barney the dinosaur
3: oh no no god no of all the okay look i grew up in a golden age For kids television golden age but barney the dinosaur is a memory i wish i could forget i hated that show i don't know about i don't know if it was the giant costumes or the songs i just never clicked with it and i feel like it was kind of the show that many millennials i feel like could relate to this it was just the show that our parents put on to keep us occupied and we watched it whether we wanted to or not. You can see Jono's laughing in the Zoom call. He knows exactly what I mean. That was this show. It, it just, I don't know. It's not that great.
0: All right. Well, I would—I um, didn't have to deal with Barney, uh, which is good. Um, I feel like my parents loved me and just spent time with me, didn't just plot me in front of a show about a purple dinosaur. And um, also, as such a connoisseur of the marijuana, I thought you would love Barney. I thought this would be a, like a no-brainer for you. You'd be like, dude, I love Barney, man. No, no.
3: Why would I love Barney? I like the way he talks and everything, it's all just annoying. I all love right. you. No, I don't love you, Barney. No. Even wow. if I was I. No, I'm very, very <laughs> oh. stressed. I feel very strongly about this. I'm sorry. Very strong.
0: Nope. Wow. We saved the high yeah. for the 80 and Brady bunch. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> All
0: right. If you missed that, um, you might want to listen back on the show. When Ryan was going to the movies the high to watch the, the Brady movie. Favorite anyway. Brady. Um, uh, okay. Barney the dinosaur. Ryan says he's cringy and triggering. I love
3: you. You love me. We're a happy family. A great big hug and a kiss from me to you. Won't you say you love me too? Ryan, no. Won't you say you love me? I want to kiss me. I don't want to kiss you, Barney. God, Ugh, creepy.
0: All right. Well, I will give you. I give you
3: a, like it's very
0: Uncle Bob weird. I will give you that. Yeah,
3: right. That's Barney is the Uncle Bob of kids' cartoons. Nailed it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Mattel is not giving up on the purple dinosaur though although it was on the TV by the way for like 18 years Barney's back Mattel announced Monday that Barney is making a triumphant return to TVs and toy shelves next year now an animated show no more giant creepy dinosaur and all those kids that had jobs they've they're unemployed now A spokesperson for Mattel told CNN that it has no specific news to announce just yet about whether the relaunch Barney will be on PBS, but it added that the company has confirmed streaming and broadcast partners that will be announcing later in the year, they said. The statement reads, we will tap into the nostalgia of the generations who grew up with Barney, now parents themselves, and introduce the iconic purple dinosaur to a new generation of kids and families around the world across continents i'm assuming you're not across content content cross content i think that's a typo based on the comma anyway mm. um yeah how do you feel about that
3: still triggered i i don't i don't hate it it's not a bad idea the redesign i think it looks pretty good for an animated show um i think it would be a fine cartoon but yeah the puppets and the big costumes like it's just that's a time capsule of the of kids tv shows from the 90s and if they brought back the costume approach it would look bizarre like if you tried to do teletubbies do you remember teletubbies mm-hmm. If you tried to do that show now it would be a fever dream that would give you nightmares well teletubbies is a bit of a fever dream that will give you yeah, nightmares no kidding. if you watch it, it as always an adult. Was. so yeah. yeah um yeah the, cup, the custard machine and all that weird anyway everything about Barney, the teletubbies was wrong yeah, it's just it, the way I feel about Barney is very similar to Teletubbies. So, yeah, I think that going animated, that's the thats the safe, that's the correct route for this. Uh, uh, I, I don't uh, have much nostalgia for it. A couple
0: of texts. Uh, Barney sounds dysfunctional to dysfunctional to me, Shane. LOL from Sid. And then another one says, Ryan does Barney way too well. I'm wondering if he was Barney.
3: Ooh. No, it's... No, no, I'd be too short to be in the costume anyway. I'd, like, go up to, like, the top of the belly. I'd be too short. The head would just fall (laughs) over.
0: (laughs) Nothing worse than a droopy neck. Yeah. Okay. Um, That was weird. Are you okay with... Um, You're going to have to keep going on that one, John. Did you... uh, are you okay with scorpions i love scorpions are you kidding me
3: oh you're gonna play a song yes <laughs> scorpions are pretty awesome you know they uh they're interesting because they're super important to rock and roll but also the heavy metal a lot heavy metal owes a lot to scorpions and well, while they're not my favorite band, like, they are pioneers.
0: Like, the list goes on and on of all the amazing things. Yeah. And they're still playing. They're still touring. Because they're awesome.
3: Yeah. Just face-melting solos.
0: Well, I mean, like, park hands and tight pants, man. Oh. So good. And this not to like mention hockey anthem. All the <laughs> whistlers out there. <laughs> this song makes me laugh. It makes you laugh. This should make it's you want to dance. Yeah.
3: It's no, it's because that song's used like stereotypically and like, you know, try like romantic
0: ballad ways in Exactly. Slow dancing in the gymnasium, man. Yeah. There's yeah. there are so many of us that slow dance to the song in a gymnasium. You gotta leave, you know, twelve inches for Jesus in between. Mm-hmm on and then these things about donkey kong <laughs> yeah <laughs>
3: yeah but yes all all, in right. all scorpions yeah definitely absolutely great great band now
0: now the uh, pokey ones that are mean no passengers on a british airways flight from texas to london found a scorpion on their plane it was unclear if the scorpion was a stowaway or had escaped from a container during transit Ooh. uh maybe maybe it was somebody's comfort animal It's my comfort scorpion. No, you can't pet a scorpion.
3: They'll they'll pet you back one way.
0: (laughs) Luke Taylor, 25, said he was on the Austin-London flight when the crew started conducting a search for a loose scorpion (laughs) on a plane. Oh, my (laughs) God. You want to send people into a panic.
1: Uh, Excuse me, sir.
0: We're just looking for a scorpion. Oh, God. Uh, They couldn't find it. They had to move everyone in that area to empty seats scattered across the plane. He told LBC News, it was unclear whether the Scorpion was located after landing or not. And while it may be on the loose, nobody was injured in the incident. Uh, This sort of thing has happened before. There's a report from eight years ago that CNN did on an eerily similar story.
1: It's hard to believe this actually happened. The Alaska Airlines flight was on its way to Portland, Oregon, when it returned to L.A. So medical personnel could treat the passenger who describes the moment she'd realized she'd been bitten. Take a listen. But then I saw
2: that it was moving and I'm like, what's that? And we just screamed, like, ah! So then everyone started freaking out and like put their feet up on the seats and
3: like. <laughs> it was this big. The tail, it was half the body. Oh
0: my God. Okay. Now, can you play the very beginning of that piece just for a second there, Jono, please?
1: It's hard to believe this actually happened. The Alaska Airlines flight was on its way to Portland, Oregon, when it returned to LA. So medical okay. personnel.
0: Now, it says it returned to L.A., but, I mean, it is confusing. It's an Alaska Airlines flight going to Portland. You'd think it might have a penguin on it, uh, but it was flying from L.A. Okay. Um, Now, nobody likes creepy crawlies on their plane, boy, especially, you know, in a tube in the sky. This does remind us, of course, of snakes on a plane. Enough is enough. I have had it with these monkey-fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. Ah. Monday to Friday plane gets me every time. Yep. Now, if only we could have a clip of Samuel L. Jackson saying his famous line, but with scorpions. Luckily for us, Ryan gets bored, and he's the audio wizard that made <laughs> one. Enough is enough. I have had it with
2: these monkey fighting
0: scorpions.
2: On this Monday to Friday plane. <laughs>
3: I tried to find uh, the most badass voice saying Scorpion because it doesn't get much more badass than Samuel Jackson, so I just went with the guy from Mortal Kombat. thought it worked out pretty very well. That's
0: good. Yeah. yeah, very good. Still love it. Um, I don't know. I still feel like uh, this is the way to go here.
3: Yes! This is also like a... This is a... That's uh, like a hockey anthem, you know? Like, every time you go to a hockey game, it doesn't matter if it's a, a like a beer league or yeah like at an actual nhl rink that song is going to get played at least once
0: yes and if somebody said hey scorpions are on your plane you'd be happy yeah i'd be sweet can i get an autograph no yeah right my god all right. Um, ba-ba-bum-bum, ba-ba-bum-bum. Do we have time to squeeze one more? I don't think we do.
3: Ooh, I think the rest of them are all pretty long. Uh, oh, you could do the puzzle ones really quick. You could do that one. Are you
0: okay with
3: puzzles? I, I prefer Lego, but puzzles are cool.
0: I love puzzles. Uh, puzzles <laughs> are great. Great way to go. Uh, I like to organize the outsides. And the colors into groups. Melanie just gets at the puzzle and usually gets it done faster than me, but I still like to organize them first. A retirement home in Wisconsin is trying to put together the largest puzzle ever made. Exciting news. The world's
2: largest puzzle is now being built. It's right here in Wisconsin. Grassy Funeral Home in Reedsburg is hosting a community event to help build the puzzle, which will contain a combined 60,000 pieces when completed. Organizers say the final picture will feature special landmarks from the entire world. I thought
3: let's get the community involved, let's meet new people in the community and let's have it just be a fun weekend of people of all ages um, coming to work together on one big
2: project. This event is set to run all weekend with the hopes to have the puzzle finished by Sunday.
0: It's ABC 15, they started a month ago, 61,000 pieces of puzzles coming together. Um, just one problem, um, they are missing a piece.
3: No. Are they really? Seriously, yes, they are seriously. Oh, that's the worst. They are So serious. if you're in
0: Wisconsin, <laughs> yeah. Keep a look up for the puzzle piece. Thanks for listening to the Shift podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and curiouscast.ca. 911 911. 911, what's your emergency? Ah! Ah!